Hear the word of the Lord from John 5, 30 through 47. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated. Well, good morning. My name is Justin. Well, good morning. My name is Justin. I'm the lead pastor here at the church. And I'm going to do a dangerous thing here. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, the last Sunday of September, we plan on moving into our new building. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't crucify me if it doesn't happen, though, okay? That's all I'm saying. Uh, we're doing our best. We got the sanctuary about 80% carpeted this week. Um, man, all of our offices are already over there. The drywall went in in the atrium. The mudding has begun. The ceiling is about 75, 80% installed. Electricians are going to show up later this week to get all the, the, uh, the finishes done in electrical and, and the atrium area. So we are right there. We're pushing hard, but you never know what could happen, okay? And so, man, but we got to be out of here the third Sunday of uh, September. So anybody got a house or a yard big enough to hold us if something bad goes wrong? I know. So we've got some... We, just pray for us and any opportunity that we're putting it out on church center, any opportunity you have to serve be much appreciated because we are at that last, you know, we're at that last 10 yards and now we got to push it over the goal line. So uh, exciting times ahead of us and uh, we'll see what happens. Now, um, as Kevin said this morning, we exist here 
to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city. And the primary way we accomplish that mission is through what we call missional communities. Now, when people join our church, the most common question they ask is, what is a missional community? Is it a small group? No, not really. Is it a care group? No, not really. Is it a Bible study? No, not really. Is it, a, you know, like a mission group where you go out and you serve and you do things? No, not, not really. Our answer is, it's not really any of those things, but actually we do all of those things in a missional community. And MC um, meets together weekly and they eat together every single week as a family. We celebrate together. We spend a lot of time outside of a group or a Sunday gathering or a Tuesday night gathering. We watch each other's kids like family. We throw parties and enjoy one another. We do all of those things. So in a missional community, you are going to find deep and meaningful community. All right. Right here, we're all sitting in rows and you're kind of looking at me. In a missional community, you're sitting in a circle and you look at one another. So you're going to find more uh, formative community in an MC than you are going to find here on a Sunday morning. But a missional community is also on mission. That means they choose a people and a place to serve in our city because Jesus said that he did not come to be served, but to serve. And when he saves us, he makes us into servants that go serve others as a way of life. That means a missional community is not just about you and you getting all your needs met. See, that's the problem with Bible studies and care groups and so many other smaller groups is they become insular. They become inward focused and it's about us on the inside and we kind of scared of those people on the outside and we come really close and well, no, we can't let anybody join our group. They would mess up our group. It's like, well, but you messed it up when you joined it. So why can't we let them join it? Right? We want to be outward focused in our missional community. So we want to be out serving others, being on mission to them and inviting them into this kind of community. We're not just talking about evangelism. We're talking about mission. We're actually practicing it. And as a missional community, it's also a place where we serve and love one another as Christian brothers and sisters. Now, if you read the New Testament, you'll find out, unless, well, you might not find out unless you're keeping track. There are 59 one another verses in the New Testament. Now, a, a one another verse is a verse that literally says, do this to one another, speaking of, of your Christian brothers and sisters. We're commanded by God to speak the truth in love to one another. We're commanded to bear one another's burdens. We're commanded to care for one another, to encourage one another, to confess our sins to each other, to be devoted to each other in brotherly love. And here's the most, here's an uncomfortable truth. Most of those things cannot be done consistently without being in some kind of missional community where you see each other consistently outside the Sunday morning gathering. Listen, when the Bible tells you to be devoted to one another, who's he talking about? Are you walking in on Sunday? Like, I'm totally devoted. I'll see that guy maybe next week. I'll wave at him. Devotion, bro. Devoted. We're devoted here. No, devotion means you're committed to one another. You're in relationship with one another. If that guy's car breaks down, he calls you. Whoa. Yeah, bear each other's burdens, right? That might mean you got to pull his jalopy behind the truck. You know, that's a burden that you got to bury. Here's the reality. This is the normal Christian life that Jesus commanded us to walk in. Go make disciples of I, as I have made disciples. Jesus lived in community with his disciples. He invites us into that same type of life. So we, we, we live and serve in missional communities because Jesus taught us to. It's the way Jesus taught us how to live. And so we want to do 
what he's commanded us to do. And here's one more reason why everyone should be in a missional community. And this one comes directly from the text of scripture that we are studying today. MCs are where we are lovingly confronted by our Christian brothers and sisters with our unbelief in Jesus and we're encouraged over and over and over again to put our faith and trust in Jesus so that we may have life. Hear that. We do not believe that you just come to Jesus, you put your faith in Jesus, and then you go on and live your life. The life of a Christian is an ebb and flow of faith and doubt. We put our faith in the wrong things a lot of the times, and we need a brother and sister to look at us and say, hey, brother, I think you're trusting in something other than Christ right now. That's why your emotions are haywire. That's why you're disobeying God. That's why stuff's going on like this in your life. Now, in other words, you can go through the motions in this gathering and no one will ever really know whether you really believe what you are saying or not. Now, your kids will if they're with you because they see what you do at home, right? But none of us will. You may sing and worship with us and then you might be living in complete unbelief at home and shacking up with your girlfriend, right? You might be worshiping Jesus and singing and you might be looking at pornography when you go home. You might be lying and cheating. Who knows what you're doing, right? No, nobody in this gathering knows what you're doing. But in a missional community, you will be lovingly confronted. You will have brothers and sisters who want to see you walk in the light as Jesus is in the light and live the life that God has called you to. So they're going to do, if, they're, if they obey Jesus, they're going to do the one thing you don't want them to do. And what is that? Put their finger on the area of unbelief in your heart that you don't want anybody to touch. They're called by God to, to press it and to say, will you trust Jesus here? Will you trust him here? Now, now listen, they're not doing it to judge you, to, to like make, just make you feel bad. They're speaking the truth in love to you because they want to see you walk in freedom. They want to see your life sing. They want to see you out from under the chains of slavery. So that's what we're going to see this morning. Now, I'm not going to be picking on anybody specifically. I'm going to try to pick on everybody generally. <clears throat> All of us, okay? The truth is, every single one of us need this ministry from God's people. I need my, as a pastor, right? Supposed a professional Christian, right? I need my missional community to challenge me and speak the truth in love to me when I'm not trusting God and obeying his word. We all need to be lovingly challenged when we aren't living up to God's standard for our lives. And what we're going to learn today is that Jesus is, giving, Jesus is showing us how to do it. Jesus is leading the way. Jesus is not afraid to challenge us. Jesus is not afraid of offending us. He knows us. He knows what's in our hearts and he wants the best for us. So what does he do? He lovingly confronts us. Now this is com completely countercultural today, right? We don't want anybody to challenge us. We don't want anybody to confront us. You have your truth. I have my truth. Let's just let everybody live, right? That's the kind of mantra that we live by today. Jesus doesn't follow that mantra. Jesus confronts us to believe. 
He reminds us of all the good that he's done to us and for us. And he begins to lay out the evidence. And he says to us today, what will you do? Will you believe me? Will you put your faith in me today? Will you choose to believe me or put your faith in something else? What Jesus won't do is allow us to walk around for very long thinking that we're believers, thinking that we're Christians when in fact we are not. So here's what's going on in today's passage. Jesus is going to confront some Jewish religious leaders head on. Now here's what's kind of scary. They claimed to know God. They claimed to know the scriptures. They had much of the Old Testament memorized. They claimed to be followers of Yahweh. And even if you looked at their life from the outside, they looked like believers. They went to the temple. They dressed real religiously. They, I mean, no doubt they wore really serious looks on their face all the time that you could tell they didn't like to have fun at all. That guy must know God. Look at him. He hates life, right? <laughs> they looked like that, right? They were very detail-oriented. When I mean detail-oriented, they took, I don't know, People like this, right? You read the Old Testament and you're like, you know what I think this Old Testament needs? More rules. So they made 600 rules on top of the Old Testament. They were that type of person, right? Really wanted them to have over for dinner, right? Ah, how was it? Ah, I was a little undercooked. Thanks for your honesty, right? <laughs> Won't have you over for dinner anymore, right? They were very fastidious type of people, very religious, very by the book, black and white types of people. But what Jesus does here, Jesus sees their heart. Jesus sees through all that religious performance. He knows what's actually going on down in their souls. He sees what's on the inside and not just what's on the outside. So what does he do? And here's the big thing. He judges them. Oh, I'm shutting off now. You know, it used to be when I grew up, the number one most quoted Bible verse from anybody outside the church was John 3.16, right? God so loved his son, or God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? We, we know that, it's up, it's up there. Today, if you ask somebody outside the church, what's, you know, what Bible verse you know? Judge not, so you should not be judged. That's the verse they know. That's the verse that gets quoted. Hey, you should probably not sleep with your boyfriend. Judge not. Hey, you should probably not get drunk on the weekends. Judge not. Hey, you should probably judge not. See, this is the culture we're living in today. And so now Jesus steps up, the same guy who said judge not, by the way. And Jesus says, the judge is here and I'm about to start judging. And immediately we're like, oh. Now listen, just to prime the pump here a little bit so you don't shut off right away. Jesus isn't judging to strictly condemn them. They might feel that way, but that's not why he's judging them. He tells us several times in here why he's judging them. He's judging them to save them. He's judging them so they would be convicted of their sin and they would reach out for salvation by grace through faith. That's why he's judging them, okay? That he's, and I'm praying that he might do the same for us this morning, okay? Let me pray for us and we can get into our text. Gracious God, we proclaim that you are the God of all grace, that you are more gracious then we are sinners. And that's saying a lot. So I ask that you would speak to us, that you would speak through me, you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords. I ask that your people would hear your word. They would be cut to the heart. They would be convicted, but then you would give them repentance and faith 
to believe and trust in Jesus Christ. We have a lot of work to do today and we, we, we cannot do it without the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, we ask you to come in. I just want to pray for Isla right now. Father God, I thank you for the faith that you've given her. I thank you for the grace that you've given her to sustain her in this battle with cancer. And Father God, we just, we believe with you that, it, that you have, that your will is good and that we trust in you. And we ask you to continue to drive this cancer from her body. We ask you for all of this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. And amen. All right, you can open up your Bibles to John chapter 5, verse 30. We are working our way slowly through the gospel of John. We don't want to have a, a Jesus of our imagination that isn't accurately portrayed in the scriptures. We want the real Jesus to be the Jesus of our imagination. And so let's open up to chapter 5, verse 30. And let me remind you what we talked about last week. We learned Jesus isn't just that sweet little 8.6 ounce baby Jesus in the manger. He's also... The colossal Christ. He is, he claimed to be, not just the son of God, but one with God, equal with God. He has the power to raise the dead. He has the power to give life to whomever he wants. He's the judge of all mankind. He's the only way to know the God, know God the Father. And one day, all of us, every single human being who has ever been born, will stand before that great white throne and Jesus Christ will judge us for what we have done in this life and for what we have left undone in this life. He's commanded us to do things and those things that we aren't doing will be judged by those as well. But he, what this text is telling us this morning is that Jesus doesn't like, like he's not like shepherd Jesus and then all of a sudden he like transforms into judge Jesus, okay? He's not like a shapeshifter. Jesus is judging now. Jesus is about to do something in our text that it might be the only place he does it in the scriptures. I've never studied it. This is my first time ever studying it. It opened my eyes to something in Jesus. Most human beings walk around and they think God is on trial with them. So like this. We, how, how many times have you said this? Jesus, I'll believe in you if you do this for me. Or we could do the flip side. Jesus, how could you let this happen to me? God, how will you, why are you allowing this? Why was I born here? Why did I have those parents? Why did I have this socioeconomic upbringing? Why did that person walk away from me? Why did that person hurt me? Why did I get sick in my body? Why? Most of the time we walk around in deep arrogance thinking that God is on trial. And one of the only times in scripture Jesus actually pulls back the curtain and shows reality and it's us who are on trial. He's the judge. And so right away, what you're going to see is Jesus creates this mock trial, this courtroom in wherever he's at. He creates this courtroom and he starts bringing in witnesses and he starts bringing forth evidence and he's got some indictments and it's a pretty intense scene. Look at verse 30. Jesus says this, <clears throat> I can do nothing on my own. In other words, again, like he said last week, I come to do just what the Father told me to do. As I hear, I judge. So the Father tells me how to judge. Okay, we see the word judge? And my judgment is just. Justice, what, what is a courtroom? A courtroom is where you get justice. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He seeks the Father's will. 
So what is, what's happening right here, Jesus is saying this. Listen, in order for you to get justice, there has to be a standard for the law, okay? Jesus is saying, I am the judge. I am the arbiter. I know the standard. Jesus as God is the standard for truth. In order for there to be truth, there has to be a standard of truth for which you could measure things. Oh no, that statement's not true. Two plus two equals four. There's a standard. Two plus two doesn't equal five tomorrow, right? Why? Because there's a standard for it. Jesus Christ is saying, I am the standard for truth. Jesus is saying, I'm the standard for goodness. No, I know everybody teaches you this today, but it's a lie. Morality is not relative, right? There is, there is a law. There is a goodness. Jesus is the standard of morality. There is an ultimate standard. And even Jesus is the standard of beauty. Beauty is not completely in the eye of the beholder. That is not true. There is a standard for beauty. It's called Jesus, the glory of God. All right? So Jesus here, as the standard and judge, here's the implication for us. He has the right to tell us exactly how to live. Why do I want my truth? Why do I want to believe that I have my truth and you can have your truth? Because I want to live how I want to live. But if Jesus is the truth, that means he has the right to say, you're doing it wrong. That hurts my feelings. I don't like that. That's exactly what Jesus is going to do today. See, all of us want to be our own standard and judge. We want to determine for ourselves what to believe, how to live, and what is good, true, and beautiful to me. Well, you don't live in your own world. You live in the Father's world, and He is the standard for goodness, truth, and beauty. And so we need to step into the courtroom today and let God measure us against that standard. And the most, one of the most frightening realities that we're going to get in this text today is you can spend your whole life studying the Bible. You can spend your whole life going to church. You can spend your whole life trying to be really, really spiritual and good on the outside, and yet you can still not come to know Jesus Christ personally and receive from him eternal life. So here's what Jesus is going to do for us. He's going to put a group of really religious looking people on trial. He's going to let us in on his court proceedings, his arguments, his conclusions. He's going to make accusations and then bring in witnesses to prove that his judgment is indeed just. Verse 31. If I alone bear witness. Now, have we picked up here? We've got judge, we've got judgment, we've got justice, we've got will, and now we've got witness. Do you see how I'm getting the idea of a courtroom from all of this, all of this language here from our text, right? Now we're going to hear testimony. All that is courtroom lang language here. Jesus is about to put these people on trial and convict them of their unbelief in him. And what Jesus is going to do, he's going to bring in five witnesses and six indictments, okay? Five witnesses and six indictments to prove that he is the son of God and that they refuse to believe their testimony that Jesus is the son of God, 
Now listen, there's many people in our society today that think they're going to get to the judgment seat of God and they're going to say something really arrogant like, hey, Jesus, why didn't you believe in me? And they're going to say, not enough evidence, not enough evidence, right? That's not the truth. That's a lie. That's a way we're deceiving ourselves. Jesus is going to show us today five witnesses that we all can look to and we all can hear. And if we're refusing to put our faith in Christ, it's actually something in us. It's not something external. It's not external evidence that we need. All right, let's get into it this morning. Verse 32. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. All right, in the Old Testament, if you were in a court proceeding, you needed the agreement of two to three witnesses. What Jesus is saying is here, listen, I came, I've told you that I'm the son of God, I told you that I come from the Father, I told you that I'm one with God, and you guys aren't believing me. All right, fine. You don't have to believe me. I'm gonna bring in five witnesses to testify to who I am, okay? Here they are. There is another who bears witness about me. This other is the father himself. You can see that in verse 37. Let me go to 37. And the father who sent me has himself born witness about me. What's that mean? Remember when Jesus was baptized. Jesus was baptized and the Holy Spirit came down on Jesus and God spoke from heaven and said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. In that moment, the father was given his testimony that Jesus is indeed the son of God. Remember that? So first, first one, first testimony, the father. Verse 33. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so you, you may be saved. All right, he calls in witness number two. Witness number two is John the Baptist. Do you remember John the Baptist? John the Baptist was this wild man out in the wilderness. He was preaching repentance and, and, and baptizing. And then when Jesus showed up to be baptized by John, do you remember what, what, what John said to him? John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, right? The Jewish leaders were all around there. So not only did they hear the Father give his testimony that he is the Son of God, but they also heard John the Baptist give the testimony that this is the Son of God and the Lamb that will take away uh, the sins of the world. So we've got witness number one, the Father, witness number two, John. And it says all of these people were coming out to see John. Why? Because John was a fireball. Right? They, 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 they knew John was from God. And so they, they, brought, him, they brought him out. And he, he's like, you didn't listen to the father. You haven't listened to John. And now verse 34 gives us a little hint here. Because I know, again, we have such a, we hate judgment. We hate the idea of judgment. So Jesus is showing us here why he's judging. He says in verse 34 at the end of it, I say these things so that you may be saved. In other words, I want you to know you're convicted so that you can be delivered. I want you to know that you're under judgment so that I can set you free. I want you to know that you're living, you're you're headed towards death so I can give you life. So again, the reason he's confronting us is to give us life. Verse 35. Speaking of John the Baptist here. He was a burning and shining lamp. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Now, I love that text. It was once said, people asked John Wesley, why do people come to listen to you preach? Why do they come from miles around? And he says, I'm set on fire by God and people come to watch me burn. It's been one of my favorite quotes since I became a Christian when I was 18. John was the same way. 
John the Baptist. He was a burning and shining lamp. People came to watch him burn. And these religious leaders came out and they recognized that God was with him, but they didn't listen to what he said when he pointed at Jesus and said, he is the Lamb of God. Verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. Here's the idea. He's bringing in exceedingly... uh, damning witnesses, all right? The last witnesses are gonna be the nail in the coffin, okay? So he's bringing on a greater witness here. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Jesus' third witness he brings in is his own works. Now remember in the Gospel of John so far, what has he done? He has already um, turned water into wine, right? He healed the soul of a promiscuous and sinful woman. He healed a young boy of a sickness from miles away with only his word. And then he, he healed an invalid who had, been, who had been sick for 38 years. Jesus says this, if you're not going to believe the father, if you're not going to believe John the Baptist, look at my works, Look what I've done. None of you can deny that I've done these miracles. These works are telling you I am the son of God. I'm not a magician. Like I'm not doing some kind of sideshow trick here. This isn't, you know, mirrors and dark magic. I am the son of God. And and they're like, well, they just refuse to believe. Verse 36. The very works that I'm doing bear witness about me that the father has sent me. Verse 37. And the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Okay, now these are some serious fighting words. These people had much of the Old Testament memorized. And he says, you don't know what you're reading. You don't know the word of God. It doesn't dwell in you. Now that's some challenging, that's, that, that, that's, that's confronting them right there, that they don't understand what the Old Testament, what the Old Testament was pointing to. They don't understand its fulfillment. See, Jesus isn't pulling any punches here. He says to these people who are very religious, you don't know God. You've actually never seen him. You've never heard his word speak. Why? How do I know? Because you don't believe in me, they, he says. Listen, this should awaken us this morning. You can spend your entire life studying world religions or studying spirituality. You can dedicate yourself to studying and teaching the Bible. But if it doesn't lead you to put your faith, your trust, your whole life on Jesus Christ, then you have never known God. This whole book is about Jesus. This book isn't primarily about us learning how to live good and religious lives. See, many people think that this book is nothing but a big old stack of rules. Can you imagine this? Let me me put it this way. This book is primarily, first and foremost, a story about God who created everything and he created everything good. And then we, human beings, Adam and Eve, rebelled from our creator 
and everything broke. We, we have a, a relational fracture between us and God. We have, mo- we, we have a moral responsibility, a moral weight. We're now bent in sin and we have an inclination towards sin. Our relationships with one another are broken. There's violence, there's destruction, there's injustice. All of this has happened because of us. Because mankind, so God created everything perfect and we screwed it up. Now, can you imagine if God said, you know what? Oh my gosh, oh my, oh my me. He said, oh my me, oh my me. I gave them one rule. I gave them one rule. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, all right? I gave them one rule and they broke it. Oh, oh my me. What do they need? I'm gonna give them a thousand more rules. That's what they need. That's how they can get out of their, their mess they're in, Right? They, when there was one rule, they broke the one rule, so let me give them a thousand rules. Does that sound very smart to you? No, it doesn't. This book is not primarily a way to get yourself to God, to obey yourself to God, to earn your right relationship with God. This is not primarily just a book about do's and don'ts. It's a story about what God has done to save us from the consequences of our rebellion in the garden. That's what it's primarily about. God's answer to man's rebellion was not, here's more rules, try harder next time. God's answer to our rebellion was Jesus. Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, came to this earth to be born as a human. Does that blow your mind? It should, right? It takes great humility for him to do that. And I say this all, nearly every week, I say something like, and Jesus came and lived the life that we should have lived. That can go right over our heads. What I mean is Jesus came and obeyed God perfectly everywhere that we have failed. All the rules, that, that, that there are rules in here, all of the rules, all the laws, all the commandments, Jesus obeyed perfectly in our place. Now, why is that important? It's important because he came as our representative. And what Jesus does, Jesus eventually, here, here's where we're headed today. Jesus as the God-man, will eventually enter into the courtroom of God. And in that courtroom, Jesus, as our representative, as our covenant head, he will do the unthinkable. When the sins are read, when our sins are read over us, every sin that we are convicted of, every sin that we've ever ever committed, Jesus Christ in the courtroom will say, yep, they did that, put it on me. Let me take the consequence. Let me take the punishment. Now, Jesus can do that because he's God, and he can also do that because he's man. And he's a sinless man so that he can take the weight of our punishment. He can take it to the cross. He can die the death that we deserve for our sins. But Jesus, because he is a sinless man, death cannot hold him down. Because the punishment for sin is death. But Jesus has never sinned, and so death can't hold him down. So what does he do three days later? Is he kicks the end out of that grave, and he walks out victorious. And it tells us we can be forgiven of our sins, and the wrath of God that we deserve can be removed from us because it was put on Jesus. And then Jesus can gift us by sheer grace and faith his relationship with the Father. So when God the Father looks at Jesus and is eternally pleased because Jesus has never done one thing to upset the Father... God the Father can look at you that way now because you are put in Christ by faith. That's the gospel. That's the story of the Bible. 
This is how Jesus says it in verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Listen, there's a way of reading the Bible that I'm just going to say is just incomplete. It's incorrect. These people read the Bible in such a way that they almost worshiped the Bible and they, they were just all it, but they didn't see the fulfillment when it showed up. In other words, like this, the Old Testament scriptures were a sign pointing towards a fulfillment, okay? If you're on your way to Florida, right? I've never pulled off to the road. Florida, 642 miles. Kids, get that, get out, we're here. We're here, let's just sit around the sign. Where's Florida? Right there, look. No beach or anything, but it's close, right? What? No, that sign is pointing towards a fulfillment. There really is a place called Florida. You need to keep going. The Old Testament was a sign that pointed towards the fulfillment. In other words, you were meant to read the Old Testament, and then when Jesus shows up, you recognize him. What does this look like? Okay, in the Old Testament, here's three, three different ways. Number one, <clears throat> there is prophecy in the Old Testament. There are scriptures written about Jesus before Jesus, uh, before Jesus became a man. Right away in Genesis, he talks about that he's going to crush the head of the snake and the snake's going to wound his heel, right? That was a prophecy pointing forward that when Jesus shows up, we're meant to see he's the snake crusher. He's the one who's going to defeat the enemy. You read in Isaiah, you read in all the prophets, all kinds of things were told about Jesus, where he was going to be born, that he was going to be born of a virgin, um, that he was going to suffer and, and uh, you know, he's going to live in Nazareth. He was going to be buried in a rich man's tomb. All kinds of prophecies. So when Jesus showed up, people were meant to recognize, oh, he's the fulfillment to what's happening here in the Old Testament. So much so, well then, then so we've got prophecies. Then you have the ceremonies in the Old Testament. If you read the Old Testament, you get really confused. Why are they killing so many animals? All of this blood and sacrificing goats and sheep and bulls and what is happening? And there's, you have to dress a certain way and, and you have to approach God a certain way. All of that was to point forward to the fulfillment that was found in Jesus. In order to be forgiven by God, there has to be sacrifice. There has to be blood sacrifice. We have to pay a price. And so when Jesus shows up on scene, John the Baptist, who's been reading his Bible appropriately, goes, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the, and the Jewish leaders are like, that's a dude. That's not a lamb, bro. Whew, right over their head. They've been studying the scriptures. John says, the lamb of God. They're like, Jesus? No. They miss it. They miss the point. And then lastly, in the Old Testament, there's types. Now, what's a type? A type, so a type is... You've got, you've got Moses. And as Moses, God called Moses to deliver his people out of Egypt, that points forward to the true and better Moses, Jesus, who delivers us not out of Egyptian slavery, about, out, but out of our slavery to sin. And he delivers us into the promised land, which is the new heavens and the new earth. Now, every, nearly every great man in the Old Testament is a type of Christ. Right? As Noah built an ark and the only way to be saved from the wrath of God was to get inside that ark and obey God, right? And then they would float on the waters. The only way to be saved from the wrath of God is to get in Christ, to be in Christ. Jesus is the true and better Noah. I could go all the way through. David, Jesus, David was a great king, but he was a sinful king. Jesus is the true and better David. He's the ultimate king that is sinless. 
all the Old Testament. You're meant to read the Old Testament and it's meant to point towards Jesus. So when Jesus shows up, you go, there's the fulfillment. We're in Florida, baby. There it is. That's what you're meant to do. These people were reading the scriptures, but they didn't see the fulfillment when it showed up in front of their eyes. <clears throat> Verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Now this is a damning verse. In the, in the Greek, it says, you don't want to come to me. Witness number four is the scriptures. Jesus says, they point to me. They testify about me. And yet you still won't believe in me. We should be asking why. Why, why won't they believe? Why do two people who grew up in the same house with the same parents and the same religious upbringing, why does one believe and sometimes the other does not? This is Jesus' surprising answer. He says, you refuse to come to me because you don't want to come to me. We, we should ask ourselves, why? why? Why do these people not want to come to Jesus? Verse 44 gives us the answer. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God? 44 gives us the answer. 43 shows us how this works. Jesus says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? In other words, you want to know why you can't believe? Because you love the glory of man. Why would you want a book full of rules rather than a savior who lives for you and dies for you and gives it all to you by grace? Because you'd rather look at your salvation and say, I did that. What does it mean? He's, you like human praise more than God's praise. Can you do, can you think about yourself? Here's, Jesus is getting, he's putting his finger on the one thing we don't want him to touch right now. And here's what Jesus is saying. You are living your life to please others. You want them to think well of you. This is why you're doing what you're doing. This is why you post the photo on Instagram. You, you wanted to hear those attaboys. You wanted that click of affirmation. This is why you dress the way you dress. You're dressing to impress somebody else. You're dressing to attract somebody else. This is why you feel compelled to buy the car that you bought or, or move into the neighborhood. You're doing it to get the praise from other people. He says to these religious men, the reason you're rejecting me is because you don't want me to be the center of your world. You want to be the center of your world. You don't want Jesus because you want people to think you're awesome. You want to be in control of your life. You want to be exalted. You want to be made much of. You love being somebody special, Jesus says, and that is the root cause of all unbelief.
That's the root of our sin. And Jesus says this, verse 43. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. But look at this. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. What's he saying there? Why would they believe, why would they want to receive a Messiah that came in his own name and not came in the name of the Father? Because if the Messiah came in his own name, he would be like them. In other words, he would be an endorsement of the way that they are. He would make them feel okay with their love of their own name and their own self-exaltation. There's a reason why nearly every cult in the world lets you sleep with whoever you want, right? There's a reason, the, there's, a, there's a similarity between cults. Why? Because they basically, they're sinful men who create sinful religions that give us what we want, right? Let me see. Give me a religion that gives me peace, that gives me a lot of sex, that gives me money. Oh, that sounds like a great religion. Yeah, every religion that's ever been created by man is basically like that. Or it's some kind of ladder and it says, do this, obey this, believe this, go here, do that, and you'll earn your way up to God. And as you earn your way up to God, supposedly, you get to look down off that ladder and look at all the fools who are way worse than you. Only Christianity, only Christianity says, no one is righteous. No, not one. We are so broken. We are so sinful. We are so bad. The son of God had to come and die for us. That's the only way that we can be saved. Then Jesus brings in his last witness this morning. He says, <clears throat> do not think, verse 45, that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? They, these guys loved Moses. Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They were committed to him. This is the, the scriptures that they had memorized. If anybody loved Moses, they loved Moses. They're like, we're team Moses. Moses is our guy. And Jesus hauls in Moses as the last witness that testifies against them. You don't believe Moses because if you believed Moses, you would believe me. Moses wrote about me. Moses was to teach you that I, I am the fulfillment and I am here. That's the last witness they bring in. He brings in here this morning. Now remember, why is this gospel written? John 20 verse 31 reminds us over and over again, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why it's written. Verse 40 says it, look, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus is like, I'm right here in front of you and you won't come to me. I've given witness after witness after witness after witness and you won't see that I am eternal life. I'm the son of God right in front of you. Verse 41, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Ouch. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. In one sense here, Jesus is putting their and all of our doubts on trial. 
He's prosecuting their unbelief. We want to say, I, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in Jesus. I, I, not enough evidence, not, evi- not enough evidence. And he brings in witness after witness after witness and says, no, you're lying to yourself. There's plenty of reason for you to believe. You just don't want to believe in me. Why? Well, one of the reasons many people run from God, I've been doing ministry now for over 20 years and this has been my experience that I've seen over and over and over and over. One of the people, one of the reasons many people run from God is because he makes you feel bad before he makes you feel good. In other words, like the woman at the well, he offers eternal life and then he says, hey, go get your husband. And she's like, I don't have a husband. He said, you're right, you don't have a husband. You've had five and you're sleeping with somebody else right now. Ooh, Confronted with sin, absolute truth, morality. Ooh, he's holy, I'm not. Makes her feel bad. But he does that in order to heal her, in order to give her eternal life. And then she hears the best news in the universe. See, he brings up her past before he saves her. In other words, God brings true conviction, hear the courtroom language, conviction for your sins before Jesus steps in the courtroom and forgives you of them. He convicts us guilty before he forgives us. And many people growing up in such a soft therapeutic society like ours, we just can't handle the conviction. We've been told our whole life that there's nothing wrong with us and we can do everything that we ever put our mind to. And we've believed it. It's not true. So what do we do? We run from the bad news of our own sinfulness and what that does is keeps us running from the best news in the universe that we can be forgiven from our sins because of Jesus Christ. That Jesus stepped into the courtroom of God. The judge of the universe stepped into the judgment seat of God and he heard guilty. Jesus was judged so that we could be set free. Many of us just don't understand this and maybe we're like the Jewish people. We have a totally wrong view of the scriptures. Mark Twain used to say that he had a recurring nightmare and in it, he was being crushed by a giant Bible. That was his dream, nightmare. He was being crushed by a giant Bible. And so what he did, he chose to not believe. He chose to not believe. See, he missed it. The Bible is meant to crush us so that it can resurrect us new. Our Bible is meant to kill us so it can give us new spiritual life. Our Bible is meant to show us there's no way for me to get back right with God through my own efforts. The only one who could do it was the Son of God. That's why he came. So all we do is put our faith in Jesus Christ and he causes us to be born again. He gives us eternal life. It's a sheer gift. It's grace. There is no earning. Now, how many people believe that? How many people see that? The Bible isn't just a huge rule book that's trying to control us or crush us or squeeze the life out of us. The Bible is pointing us to Jesus. So what are we supposed to do when we fail to live up to God's standard? We're we're supposed to reach out to Jesus for help. 
But all the scriptures point to him. Isaiah 53, 5. This is one of those prophecies. It says, he was pierced for our transgressions, nailed to the cross. He was crushed for our iniquities. The gavel from the judgment of God came down upon Jesus. Jesus heard guilty. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. All of the punishment that we deserve was put on Jesus. And now we can have peace with God and we can walk with God and with one another because Jesus took our place. And with his wounds, we are healed. Jesus heals us. Jesus is the judge who was judged in our place. And when you put your faith in Jesus, you begin to see that it really is all about him. His life, his death, his resurrection, his righteousness is credited to your account. This is the best news in the universe. If you've put your faith in Christ, your judgment day has already come and gone. It happened on the day that Jesus Christ was crucified. So I say, let the scriptures crush you, but then let Jesus resurrect you to a new and better life through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now this is it, last one. Why would we not want to believe this? Why would we just not want to believe this? I think it's really simple. We want to be at the center of our own life. If my salvation is dependent 100% on Jesus, that means Jesus could ask anything from me. And how could I say no? See, I think we want any other way of salvation that keeps us at least a little bit of control. Jesus could never ask me to give of my finances. See, I want Jesus to forgive my sin, but I don't want him to tell me how to spend my money. I don't want Jesus to tell me what to do on my Tuesday night. No, no, I want to come to Jesus and get something from him, hopefully make it into heaven one day, but I don't want Jesus to be the king of my life. And the reality is, there is no Jesus like that. There is no Jesus like that. The only Savior is also Lord. So if you don't want a Lord, you won't get a Savior. See, we fail to come to Jesus because we want to be the center of our life. Jesus puts that kind of faith on trial. It won't stand up under the judgment seat of Christ. We'll look really foolish one day if that's us. So I say, come to Jesus today to get life. Come to Jesus today for forgiveness of sin. Come to the one who was judged for you. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your goodness and your kindness. We use the word grace. We throw it around often. But we, we forget just how scandalous it is that we are so broken, so sinful, that there's nothing we could do to ever earn our way back into right relationship with you. And so you came to do it for us in the person of Jesus. We've never been loved like that. We, we run from it. We repel, we're repelled by it sometimes because we don't want to be exposed as a sinner. We don't want to be shown that we're lacking, that our marriage is broken, that our, our kids are rebelling. We don't, we, don't want to be, we don't want to be exposed. We don't want our sin to be known. So we run from it, not knowing that we're running from the best news in the universe, that we can be healed and forgiven and given grace upon grace through Jesus. Would you call people to yourself this morning? Would you heal us and forgive us all for your glory and for our good? 
In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.